There are people out there that do command small armies of bots that whenever there's any sort of crisis, they immediately activate their networks and they immediately provide an alternative narrative to the accepted mainstream narrative. You had a crisis where it was difficult for the public here to understand exactly what was going on because voices that were active overseas were weighing into our own local news. There have been cases where there's stories that climate change activity is actually some sort of plot to try to control the weather. I mean, it has this sort of unreality to it, but it's enough to make parts of the population stop and question what they're being told. I feel like around COVID-19, it is almost a free-for-all. Everybody, every nation seems to have a lot of skin in this game. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Those comments you just heard were from Chris Zappone, the digital foreign editor at the Age and Sydney Morning Herald newspapers and Futures Council member of the National Security College. And we'll be back right after this message to talk to Chris about disinformation campaigns from climate change to COVID-19. 
or jailed for six months. It is up to police discretion as to how valid your reason is. Now, think on that for a second. One of the world's freest liberal democracies can take away your freedom if they do not think you have a good reason to be out on the street. And this for Australia, which has just endured the worst drought on record, mega bushfires and toxic clouds of smoke, and massive hailstorms that destroyed homes and cars in our capital city. And this leads us on to the topic of discussion for this episode, the second in our special climate change series. We speak to Chris Zappone on the disinformation campaigns that have swirled around Australia's megafires and climate change in general, And we also look at why climate change disinfo campaigns have meshed with the disinfo campaigns revolving around the coronavirus outbreak. Chris Sapone is the digital foreign editor at The Age and Sydney Morning Herald newspapers and is a member of the Futures Council here at the ANU National Security College. He was among the first in the media to report on the Kremlin's efforts to interfere in the 2016 US presidential election. He has testified to Parliament on the political risk of social media manipulation and is a self-confessed Cold War junkie, which you can see for yourself on his website, coldwardaily.com. Now, before we kick off, I remind you that I'm literally using my wardrobe as a studio. You can see pics of this on our Twitter feed if you go to at MattSecPod. And Chris is speaking to us from under a blanket somewhere in Victoria. Whilst we've done a pretty decent job to reduce outside noises and cut down on resonance, we may not be able to replicate the immaculate acoustics of the Policy Forum recording studio. So please bear with us while we make the best of a bad situation. Now, let's catch up with Chris. G'day, Chris. Welcome back to the National Security Podcast. Oh, thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. To get started, let's just define some terms. What is disinformation and how does it differ from, say, misinformation? Well, disinformation is sort of the willful manipulation of information for a particular purpose. Whereas misinformation is just the, the misunderstanding or misuse or misappropriation of information. So that's in a way much more common. So something happens and the, the, uh, a reader takes the wrong impression of it and then they amplify that, uh, incorrect, uh, understanding and then it takes off from there. So, so it's, it's misinformation more... is, is essentially innocent and disinformation is nefarious. Would you put it that way? Well, except for misinformation can work in other ways too, because one of the easiest ways and the most uh, sort of insidious ways to thwart an open democratic discussion is to simply amplify one side of the debate. So there, it's a credible democratic de- discussion, but you get in there and you get and you just uh, increase the volume on one side of the debate, and it makes the debate. Uh, very difficult to have in a, in a sort of a genuine sense. And I think that a lot of that happens with a lot of the outlets that we see active today in the world of, of propaganda and uh, manipulation. They do it by amplifying not untruths, but amplifying just one side of, of, the, of the issue that's being debated. All right, and what are some of the standard tactics, processes, or even hallmarks that we see uh, in disinformation campaigns? 
Well, some of the hallmarks that we see around disinformation campaigns are the, the uh, appropriation of images or words that don't belong with each other. So a great example is there's an act of terrorism and then suddenly it's, it's um, the information is flowing very rapidly online. Almost immediately, you'll see images of terror acts um, that you can, from those images, look to blame one particular group or party. But we learn almost immediately afterwards that these are images that came from a terror act from two years ago in a different country. But see, by then, the, the, uh, the idea is already spreading, right, for who's responsible for this terror act. So this is a great example of the way that images can be appropriated uh, to, to spread disinformation. So you've just mentioned how it happens online and we see we hear a lot about it in social media and so on. Uh, does disinformation only live online or does it utilize numerous modes of delivery? It can happen from any uh, from any format, uh, from any platform. It does not have to be on social media. It can certainly be through traditional media, through, through traditional print, uh, through a, a uh, somebody who would be a bad faith speaker or bad faith even candidate. So we've seen a situation in the past, uh, in the ongoing U.S. election, where there's been a candidate who has so faithfully echoed uh, Kremlin propaganda that you wonder, well, is this person a genuine, or are they actually genuinely trying to run for president as a Democrat, or are they functioning as some sort of information spoiler, where they're recycling these ideas that are, that are basically formulated uh, from groups that are loyal to the Kremlin and having them ingested into the American political debate? Yeah, that, that reminds me of a tactic I've seen used to mainstream a particular narrative or theory on any chosen subject. Bot networks will be set to repeat a chosen message, usually a you know, salacious or sensational claim, across a number of platforms such as Twitter and Facebook for a period of time. Some obscure website or news network will then write up a story with a title like, you know, the internet is a buzz with jaw-dropping news or news has gone viral on the internet that blah, blah, blah. Those same bot networks then start retweeting these so-called news items, which are then read and reposted by authentic users, which in turn are then picked up by actual news websites. And we have the mainstreaming of an idea that was completely fabricated for strategic purposes. Oh, th that's right. And, and this is something um, that we're seeing a lot of, um, where you can have this sort of alternative reality that's happening on social media that is quietly but persistently amplified by, uh, automatically by bots. So that doesn't mean it's hitting you over the head with this unreality. Instead, it's just always there. Right? It's just always sort of persistent. It's sort of in the soup of, of information that, that people are drawing from, including people in the media. And so this, uh, this uh, idea gets propagated, and then it gets picked up, and then it gets mainstreamed. There's actually a term for this um, in Russian that translates to English as stuffing. Um, and it's where you, you take this idea and you, um, you concoct it on social media, and then over time it gets picked up and amplified and sort of crystallized into the real news. Um, and then it goes back into social media. Um, but this is a way um, that regular media can be manipulated. And the, the public's ability to understand what's going on in their own political society becomes undermined. Um, I think that the media has actually gotten better 
at countering this in recent years, in part because of events that we've seen, you know, over the past few years. Um, but it's still a challenge. I mean, we're, we're still drawing from information that uh, is available to the public at large. But the job, in my view, of the media is sort of the manual override to this to this ecosystem that can easily drift into a world of, of disinformation or poor information. So it's it's almost difficult to talk about disinformation campaigns without bringing up Russia and and uh, some of their efforts around the 2016 presidential election in the US. And then this conjures up images of propaganda efforts during the Cold War, largely by Russia and also by the US and all of the large actors in that period of time. Has there been a uh, much of a an evolution in terms of propaganda? Is the disinformation campaigns just an evolution of the previous propaganda efforts of the Cold War, or is this a real quantum leap away from uh, what we used to see? It is a a quantum leap, but only in large part because people weren't expecting it. So, I mean, one general observation is what happened in 2016 in the U.S. M- it might not ever be able to happen like that again, in part because so much of the U.S. electorate and, and so many people in the media in the U.S. just weren't prepared for it. And since then, we've seen not just in the U.S., but here in Australia and other open democracies, they're taking this issue very seriously. And just the awareness that there's the issue that there can be this sort of um, coordinated campaign or, or it's multiple overlapping campaigns, just the um, just the awareness that this possibility exists, I think, raises the bar for what they would have to do to be that effective again. So it's sort of I would almost describe it more as a, a future shock moment. That's what 2016 was. But as we're seeing now with the impact of the bushfires um, and the, the coronavirus pandemic, there are some news stories that are going to transcend uh, the ability for, for uh, disinfo actors to manipulate them. So obviously there, there can be manipulation around them, but at the end of the day, there's this other reality that we have to deal with in for example, the fires or the virus that uh, that is is not going to be able to be wiped away through uh, uh, through the nefarious manipulation of information. Yeah, so you've you've brought up the main point that we're going to discuss here, and that's the bushfires and climate change at large. And whilst most people who subscribe to this podcast will be familiar with this disinformation campaign surrounding the US elections, the recent bushfire crisis in Australia brought attention to another area of competition over the global narrative. The Australian bushfires of 2019-2020 of a scale never seen before in Australia and were preceded by a historic drought, which is largely accepted to have been exacerbated by climate change. Indeed, increasing dry periods and longer and more intensive fire seasons were predicted for the 2020s over a decade ago. But if you are paying attention not only to social media, but tabloid newspapers and Australian shock jocks, you might be of the opinion that droughts and bushfires like that we just experienced this summer are par for the course in Australia and that these fires were only significant because of some inexplicable increase of arsonism in Australia. Chris, the issue of disinformation around climate change is wider uh, than just the recent bushfire crisis in Australia, but let's start there and zoom out. What was the dynamic around the Australian bushfires? Was this a coordinated campaign of disinformation? Was there some kind of coherent agenda 
to the material that was being put out? Or was this just simply an organic mobilisation of bias against the theory of human impact on Earth's climate? Uh, I, it, I mean, from the best knowledge that we have of it, it looks like it wasn't an overly coordinated activity on the part of people who deny climate change. There are people out there that do command small armies of, of bots that whenever there's any sort of crisis, they immediately activate their, their networks, right? So not just the bots, but also sort of alternative news websites and the like. And they immediately provide an alternative narrative to, to the accepted mainstream narrative. I mean, and they do it sometimes not necessarily for political reasons. It can also be commercial reasons. You can sell ads on these websites that get clicks that, that, you know, flow through to, to actual uh, money. So I think we were seeing that in the case of the Australian bushfires. For me, what was significant about what happened here, though, is that it was one of the first times where you had a crisis where it was difficult for the public here to understand exactly what was going on because voices that were active overseas were weighing into our own local news to try to reframe it or to explain it in a different way. Now, I mean, obviously this was helped by some of the local political reaction. What comes to mind for me is that one of the first statements made by the coalition in November was blaming sort of inner city lunatics and greenies uh, for uh, their policies around uh, burnoff in the, in the bush. Um, and that created an immediate confusion for the public about, well, what's actually driving these bushfires? I think from a, from a very narrow political consideration, if you blame it on your political opponent, you know, that's what you would do in a regular news cycle. But what it did was it just created this sort of circular motion of crisis of like, well, where do we look for an explanation for what's going on? So it sort of infused or it charged the debate with this political element or this highly politicized dimension to it that made it even more confusing. And I think that this is very significant because we're not used to seeing this on such a, a massive scale. And because the fires in Australia were so enormous and they're happening in an ecosystem that is iconic and it is recognized around the world, these images could immediately be recycled and picked up and co-opted and manipulated elsewhere. And then they were being ingested back into the, into the news cycle here. And it, it created this moment of where the, where the, the facts were very much unanchored from the reality that the people were living. And, and particularly around a national disaster where it was very fast moving. There were people in communities that needed to evacuate very quickly. This, uh, I think was very significant. And I think that this was a sort of a landmark moment for the issue of disinformation in Australia. Yeah, and I think you've highlighted not only how disinformation moves across multiple platforms and mediums, but how it actually appeals to people. One of the issues that struck me the hardest during the bushfire crisis were how people were using disinformation or unproven claims to confirm their already deeply held biases, which were often based on ideology, by aiming at easy targets. Climate change is a superbly complex issue. It's so complex that it's difficult to wrap your brain around the amount of variables involved. But it's also that our own behaviour and lifestyle might be one of the major contributing variables to the changing of the climate. 
Challenging your own biases is discomforting and accepting responsibility for the need to change is confronting. Trusting experts and their conclusion feels risky and it's altogether easier and more satisfying to point your finger at naughty teenagers with boxes of matches or people that disagree with your opinion as if they are responsible for what's going wrong. And a lot of the disinformation almost seems designed to give this kind of satisfaction and to feed the egos of people who want to be proven right and are more interested in laying blame than accepting change. That I mean, I think that there is a natural human need to to look for you know the the good and the bad in any story, um, and and for something that is sort of um, that is in some ways that feels very abstract, right? This issue of global climate change. This is happening on, on a global you know level. Uh, you know, you you there's a human need to look for something very tangible and say, no, it's this person, it's their fault. We've got this crisis, it's their fault. And in fact, this is something that we see, uh, you know, in the immediate aftermath of any sort of terror event, there's an immediate need. I think one of the, one of the most famous cases is the Boston bombing of a few years back where people on Reddit uh, decided that the person that was behind the bombing was this completely unrelated uh, a student at, I think it was Boston University who had gone missing a few days earlier and it set off this sort of lynch mob online for this one person who, uh, unfortunately, I think they, they had taken their own life, uh, days before. But it's this, it's a very human need to look for a sort of a, a scapegoat and to find it immediately. Now we're living in an online environment. So obviously this has always happened. This is human nature. But now we're living in an online environment where the availability of information, including bad information, is infinite. And things happen essentially at the speed of thought. So you're sitting there at your computer or you're there with your mobile phone. You're trying to process something that is frightening and you're looking to, to grab onto something very tangibly, uh, that, you know, as the, as the cause or the culprit. So definitely. And I, and I think that the people that exploit this or the, the forces online that would exploit this to the greatest degree are the ones that understand this part of our human psychology and they know how to sort of direct it. Yeah, so one of the interesting claims that was being made that I actually came across first on a US-based street art forum, of all places, uh, was that the fires were being lit by eco-activists in order to fool people into taking greater action on climate change. And this brings the Australian experience into the global context of, cli- of the climate change wars. The argument over climate change in terms of the science or the policy response or even the political ideology is part of everyday life and has been for decades now. How does the global dynamics scale up from from what we've seen in Australia over the recent summer? Well, one one of the interesting trends, I think, in this space of, of online information, misinformation, disinformation, and more sort of formal campaigns around it is to really sort of create and confect a sense of crisis, right? So um, global ch- climate change exists, and there are things that people and governments can do to try to mitigate it. But a lot of the material that you see around 
global climate change from groups that are actively, that have very strong geopolitical uh, intentions, uh, is to create the sense of crisis and paralysis among people in open democracies. And if there's a problem that's beyond us that we can't take action on, well, then, then, you know, we freeze up, we look inward and we don't take action and that it paralyzes the public and the state. And I think that that is a general theme that you see around climate change, around the propaganda and misinformation around there that is, that is, um, shaped to be very Western or very anti-Western in nature, but also around terrorism, also around identity issues and the like, where there are uh, any sort of political issue is immediately turned into a crisis that becomes uh, almost uh, impossible uh, to deal with through the traditional democratic uh, process. So are you saying that a significant element of the disinformation campaigns around climate change aren't actually about climate change and uh, the arguments for the science and whatnot, but it's more so the the strategic aim is to impact the societies that are picking up on these messages? So it wouldn't matter whether it's climate change or a terrorist attack. Is is that the argument you're making here? Uh, Yes, in in, in a lot of cases, yes. It's not so much about the, the specific issue. It's what issue can we take and distort it in such a way that it feels overwhelming, right? That it feels like something that, that is just that we're unable to address through the tools that we have at hand uh, through our democracy. And, and I think you see that that's a continuing theme. Does it surprise you that I was reading memes about Australian bushfires on an American street art forum? That, that to me, was one of the strangest experiences, that I would be reading about art in New York back alleys and subways, and up pops a meme of Greta Thunberg lighting bushfires in Australia. Uh, how, how do you explain that? Well, I mean, that that speaks to the sort of the viral nature of news these days, right? It, it's so easy to spread ideas and not just ideas, but images um, across borders, across jurisdictions and across publishing domains. And I think that this is one of the m- most interesting changes that we're living through now. We've gone from a time where so much of this would be carefully worked out and crafted, this information very carefully crafted through words and very careful placement of these stories in journals that would be picked up and recycled elsewhere. And now this can happen on a mass scale. And because we're moving into a media environment that's much more uh, sensory-based rather than print-based, you can do this with images. You can create images that are open-ended or that are ambivalent. But the one thing that's certain about them is that they erode trust in uh, legitimate organizations, legitimate uh, institutions that we that we place our trust in by you know, the basis of the system of government we have. Um, but they don't really offer an answer. So, you know, instead of um, proposing an alternate form of government as it might have been during the actual Cold War, we don't really have to have that now. We can just have a series of images that make you question what you've been told by traditional media or, or media that actually does fact checking and that does balanced reporting. And, and we can cast that as part of a, an enormous, subtle plot to undermine your own well-being. And instead, we're going to, going to provide you with these images that sort of give uh, a relief to the side of you that wants to disbelieve it all because it's too complex or it seems too overwhelming. 
Yeah, and I think that that hits on the greatest evolution of propaganda from the Cold War to the digital age. As you mentioned, their previous efforts to spread disinformation often took form of articles specially planted into influential journals or periodicals. All of this took time and could only be carried out by dedicated teams of people that were most often backed by the resources only a state can provide. However, today, anyone can publish whatever they want to a global audience via the internet. Anyone can develop a meme, and in fact, it's not only individual memes that go viral, but the meme-making act in itself. Many internet communities are competitive by nature, seeing who can post the coolest selfie or tweet the most exotic meal or Instagram the you know most desirable lifestyle, or even make the funniest or quickest meme on Reddit, or indeed who on 4chan can create the next viral meme. Whilst most memes have a humorous nature, the majority of political memes have a point to them. For example, uh, the doctored picture of Greta Thunberg lighting fires in Australia asking if this will make people take climate change seriously. Yeah, sure, it's a joke and nobody expects that Greta was actually out there starting fires. However, the only people that I could find posting that meme when I tried to track it back to its origin were people that already disagreed with Greta's message or challenged the science of human-induced climate change. So whilst they may see it as funny or as a joke, I don't see anyone making funny memes that are actually contradictory to their biases. Anyone can create propaganda nowadays. All that you need to do is plant the seed of doubt, create an attractive narrative, and the meme lords, shit posters, and Facebook communities will do all the rest of the work for you. The targets of the propaganda become active participants and even generate the material themselves. The act of creating propaganda itself is what has gone viral. Well, that seems like as good a place as any to take a quick break and I might squeeze out of my wardrobe to stretch my legs and thanks again for bearing with us as we record these podcasts remotely given that we're unable to do them in person in the studio as you're used to due to the global health crisis. So hang in there and we will be back in a tick with more disinformation campaigns from climate change to COVID-19 with Chris Sapone on the National Security Podcast. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, you mentioned earlier in one of your responses that there is an orchestrated campaign and that there are organised actors involved in spreading disinformation about climate change. Can you identify who some of these organisations and actors are? Well, one of the biggest would be groups that are working on behalf or loyal to the Kremlin. And there's a, there's a very good reason for this. And that is that the Russia is a Petra state and they, the, the state still derives quite a bit of its wealth through the sale of oil. Um, so if you see a reform on climate change and 
Western governments or more governments around the world moving to renewables, that could actually take wealth out of the Russian state. So it's for that reason that the Russian hackers are, were suspected uh, in 2009 of being behind the, the ClimateGate hack. So that's where emails that were being exchanged among academics at the University of East Anglia in the UK, these emails were, they were hacked and stolen, and then they were posted to a, a website uh, with links that were s- sent to right-wing climate change skeptic sites. And then from there, this story got its way into the mainstream media, and it was packaged as uh, these scientists themselves don't even trust these numbers, or these scientists themselves don't believe these numbers. So once that filtered out, it carried through into the regular media, and it caused just enough doubt. So it's like it's like a courtroom. It caused just enough doubt to have uh, some of the urgency and some of the resolve around climate change melt away because people are saying, wait, if these, if these experts themselves aren't convinced, why should I be convinced? What's interesting about this? So this is something that's been blamed on the Russians. It's never been conclusive, but it is an area where Russia has a motive to try to set this back. And there's a very legitimate geopolitical goal in doing so. That's on the one side. But then we see there's another use of, of uh, attacks on sort of a climate change action, which is to, to take the, to take the issue of climate change and to sort of smear it or morph it into something beyond just climate change, into to portray it as some sort of uh, nefarious grand plan to control populations in the West. There have been cases where there's stories that climate change activity is actually some sort of plot to try to control the weather. I mean, it has this sort of unreality to it, but it's enough to make parts of the population stop and question what they what they're being told and because they're being offered this counter narrative uh, even though it, as i said it's unreality it's enough to sort of gum up the works of consensus and that is what um, open democracies rely on is a certain level of consensus in the public now i just wanted to hit on a couple of things there you, you talked about the geopolitics of disinformation but you've also mentioned right wing groups and when looking over the landscape of modern day disinformation, it's easy to get the idea that it's almost a right wing phenomenon. Part of the reason I say this is that there seems to be a significant overlap of themes and objectives among these groups. And the current coronavirus pandemic makes a great example. Vice News recently published uh, that they'd noted an eco fascist group called the Hundred Handers, and that they're a group that believes that it's overpopulation in non European countries that causing climate change and that they had been impersonating the Extinction Rebellion to focus the fear of COVID-19 on non-European races. This is an instance where we see the overlapping of racism with views on climate change and using disinformation around a, a global pandemic to create a desired effect. We also see allegations against the Murdoch media of an effort to undermine action against climate change. We saw that a lot during the Australian bushfire crisis. We also see shock jocks like Alan Jones denying the impact of climate change on the recent mega bushfires, reinforcing the inaccurate perspective 
that pandering to social groups around backburning made the bushfires more ferocious, and he's even been accused of undermining the seriousness of the coronavirus pandemic. And let's also recall that it's the Republican candidate that benefited from Russia's disinformation campaign around the 2016 election. And it is members of the Republican Party that are now blocking efforts to protect the 2020 presidential election from further interference. Are modern day disinformation campaigns a right wing or conservative phenomenon? You know, it's a it's very interesting to contrast this sort of state of play with how things might have been 50 years ago. So right now, for for all these reasons that you've given, it seems that the far right is often in league with forces overseas in, in say, the Kremlin that really push this sort of ethno-nationalism. But there's nothing inherently right-wing about disinformation. It just may be that at this time in human history, it's the tool that the right wing gets more mileage out of. And I say that because if you could roll back the clock 50 or 60 or 70 years, and we're talking about disinformation, we're talking about subversion, we're talking about Russian active measures, we would probably be thinking much more along uh, left-wing politics. I mean, back then, it was the concern that people in the Labour Party had ties to the Communist Party, or people in the um, the uh, Communist Party uh, in Australia were linked to uh, figures in uh, the Soviet Union that were that had bad intentions for the Australian state, uh, and likewise in, a, in other Western democracies. So it might just reflect our times, and we're coming out of a period where we had massive globalization. So uh, borders were weak, massive immigration, a lot of it legal, a lot of it illegal. And in that, it's very easy for right-wing parties to say, you know what the issue is, is not to try to uh, fix these imbal- these global imbalances that contribute to uh, undocumented immigration. Rather, the problem is that person over there or that community over there that's living in my country. And so that that uh, is much more of the right-wing response to globalization. And that makes for fertile ground for the sort of disinformation that is um, so popular and rampant on the right side of the political sp- spectrum. I mean, to me, it, it is, it's very um, interesting to watch how seriously say the U.S. is taking the information challenge from China on COVID-19. Um, and you contrast that with the way that the U.S. government, with the presidency of Donald Trump, has faced off these same accusations around the disinformation from Russia. I mean, if, if disinformation is bad, it's got to be bad sort of on both sides. So it's very interesting to see this contrast in, in approaches depending on the country that it may be coming yeah, from. Yeah, so let, let's get on to COVID-19 now and exactly the disinformation that that's uh, coming out of China because it seems that the disinformation scape isn't just the realm of ideologues. There's strong evidence to suggest that groups either working for or supportive of the Chinese Communist Party have taken up the modes and methods innovated by Russian groups that we saw in 2016. Twitter accounts that were either hacked or were already in existence or that were purchased by groups that were highly active in the online campaign to control the narrative around the Hong Kong protests, many of these accounts have now pivoted to try and influence the narrative around the outbreak of COVID-19 and the performance of the Chinese Communist Party in handling it. They're sending out messages that, at the least, complement 
the work of the CCP in containing the virus and at worst trying to cover up the fact that it was the mishandling of the outbreak by the CCP that likely allowed the virus to go from a local outbreak into a global pandemic. Indeed, even the Chinese diplomatic corps have openly driven the messages containing accusations that the outbreak is part of a US military attack on the PRC or that the virus was in Italy before it was found in China. Some of those narratives have now been walked back and I'm not sure whether that was an internal process within the Chinese Communist Party or whether they were risking being kicked off some of these platforms that they were spreading this information on. I know that you've been watching the messaging that's revolving around COVID-19 pretty closely. What are some of the key observations that you've made and who are the main actors looking to influence the global narrative around the outbreak? I feel like uh, around COVID-19, it is almost a, a free-for-all. I mean, everybody, uh, every nation seems to have a lot of uh, skin in this game. So as you described with China, a lot of their diplomatic corps have, have opened up accounts and they're, they're on Twitter. Some of them have moved into the space of active disinformation. So posting links to known disinformation sites. And this is, uh, this is new for China. Um, I think what they are doing, uh, what China is doing, other than that, is just this high volume, uh, you know, wide reach uh, communication that doesn't involve disinformation, but just this very active communication about what China is doing, so that China can be seen as this very capable uh, player that that has a, a superior system to the Western system. Um, but that's just China. So the U.S. is pushing back. Reportedly, they've got this multi-agency uh, effort underway to try to to um, rebuke these accusations uh, from China that the that that the U.S. somehow created this coronavirus, which is nonsense. But they realize that a lot of perception and potentially lasting perception about the you know relative power of the U.S. and China is very much at stake at this moment um, as countries are in crisis. But this isn't limited to China and the U.S. If you go across the Atlantic, Russia is actively pushing disinformation around coronavirus, uh, raising questions about the ability, well, the origins of the virus, but also the ability for Western uh, health systems to cope with it. And this is as Russia itself is trying to cope with it. On top of that, they are amplifying stories that were uh, originally generated by Iranian media. So Iran is another country that is really under the gun with coronavirus. And it is, I think, a matter of first course in a country that has such strong information control that you get out there and you start shaping what people are thinking. I mean, for them, and this is a big difference between our system that relies on an informed public, and that means that there's a, you know, a large scope to have an open debate and a system that you'd see in Iran or Russia or China where information is just one more area that must be dominated by the government in order to keep the public in line. Um, and so we're seeing Iran do this as well. Uh, and then within the U.S., there are conspiracy theories that were, in some cases, they originated, it looks like, with Russian sources or the Russians amplified them in the first pass. They've got taken up into 
the circles in the right wing in the U.S. And in a famous case, the, the story about, and it is a fable, that the coronavirus was actually created in the, uh, in a, a supposed bioweapons lab in Wuhan. That was amplified by a U.S. senator on Fox News. So once that's, you know, put at that level, and of course, this is the, this is the Murdoch media. It just gets baked in. It becomes an accepted part of the right wing understanding of the world in the U.S. What's interesting is the whiplash that they are going through because they're realizing that this propaganda or this dis- disinformation is not going to save them when their loved ones are facing the, the effects of coronavirus. I mean, this is a, a lasting pandemic. It's a lasting uh, health crisis. So it really, I mean, if I had to describe it, I would say that this is a moment where all of these world powers are seeing the opportunity and in the crisis, right? The opportunity to try to reshape world events through or perceptions of world events through coronavirus uh, disinformation, propaganda, or, or just strategic communication. Yeah. And that whiplash you mentioned that is being felt in the US is likely to be experienced in Russia very soon as well. After looking to jump on the authoritarians, do national emergencies better bandwagon, there are now Russian cities going into lockdown and not the kind of well-planned and orderly lockdowns that we're seeing in other countries, but lockdowns that come with only hours' notice. And this indicates that there is an acute sense of concern over the virus's spread in Russia. So we've spoken about modern-day disinformation campaigns as not emerging from the 2016 US presidential campaign, but that they go back as far as 2009 and indeed were focused on the issue of climate change. We've discussed how disinformation is specifically engineered to impact the psychology of the recipient and how it motivates to not only be participants in the narrative of the propaganda, but to actually recreate that propaganda in their own way. We've also pointed to the way disinformation is mainstreamed to find its way into the nightly news bulletins and even into the rhetoric of elected officials. It would seem that modern day disinformation has been a highly successful social experiment. How do you see the future of modern day propaganda and indeed disinformation as a tool evolving over the coming decades? Well, I think I think if we can muddle through this period, and and it's sort of marked from you know by crisis to crisis, um, I think that there will be eventually some move for a more comprehensive approach to all of this, right? So uh, democracies will realize or recognize that there are certain um, essential information elements that they need in order to function, and these will be areas that they will protect. Democracies may also learn especially after COVID-19 as it continues to, to sort of unfold in the world, they may also learn or they might remember the, the importance and need for a, a systematic way of fighting an information battle. So this is sort of lost knowledge. And if you went back to the 1940s, 1950s in the U.S., there were lots of discussions, lots of planning, lots of uh, lots of strategy. Right? It wasn't just this ad hoc trying to you know uh, hose down a message. It was a, it was a consistent strategy that they had. But this seems like well, it was a different century. It seems like a you know a different world. But there, I mean, this was a time when uh, people in media were in active conversation with people in government on specific issues, and this was a, this idea of this sort of projected idea 
sense of what democracy was trying to promote to the world, what in this case was American democracy, but there would have been equivalent programs in a lot of other countries that were in the same sort of, um, same sort of struggle. Uh, I think that's a lost art in a lot of open democracies. And I think that that will be remembered um, and that will be drawn on and recalled. And we might start to see some more consistency. And once we do in a consistency and response and the ability to understand these things, um, then we might have, it might make for a more uh, consistent outcomes where the news itself does not seem so strange, where when we hear things that sound unbelievable, they're almost immediately interpreted as unbelievable instead of just this other rabbit hole that we're going to go down and spend days or months in trying to chase this thing that never actually existed in the way that we were told that it did. So that that's the, the way that I, I see that moving. So it's just more consistency, more sort of a big picture strategy around this around this issue. Mm. Democracy's virtues are its own best defense. So, Chris, a question that we've been asking our guests so far this year on the podcast is what's one of those life moments that you've had that has influenced the way that you look at the world? And that could be a book that you've read, a movie that you've seen, or even a conversation that you've had. Have you had a particularly interesting moment that's shaped your approach to your career and the way that you see the world? Well, I think if I had to say one, it would probably be back in the mid-1980s. Um, and there was this, this set of uh, bands at that time. And there's one band in particular called the Minutemen. So it was this sort of, you know, punk outfit from California. But they sang about sort of the real world. Um, and they were, they were singing about, uh, the conflict in Central America at the time. And this was something that was very real to me because we could see, um, uh, there were protests about it in the city that I was in. There were bumper stickers saying no, no U.S. blood for war in Central America. And I realized, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't just, uh, politics, but it's also culture. Um, and it really sort of made it come alive for me. And then I, and it gave me a, a taste of the, the sort of world that I was interested in. Um, and then I, I've just followed on from there. I, I have a similar experience. I used to listen to Bad Religion as I was a young student getting angry and, and wanting to go and fix the world. And it's, uh, sometimes listening to Bad Religion really brought me back down to reality. So we have some shared experiences there. Chris Sapone, thanks very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Chris, thank you very much. And a big thanks to Chris Sapone for speaking with us from under his doona in downtown lockdown Victoria. And thank you for bearing with us as we wait out the virus in our respective homes and do the best we can without access to our normal studios. We will conclude this special series on climate change in the next episode, undoubtedly with the relevant mentions of the current global crisis. And we'll be doing that with a conversation on emergency management and policies of resilience with Mr. Mark Crosswell-Up. Mark has served as the Director General of Emergency Management Australia, where he was responsible for the coordination of Australia's response to crises such as natural disasters and security-related incidents, both domestic and international. And he was also the head of Australia's National Resilience Task Force. We will be talking to him about the policy challenges related to developing resilience to the effects of climate change and what resilience looks like in practice where the greatest risk of national emergencies exist for Australia. And of course, we will get his take on how Australia is handling the coronavirus pandemic. 
and maybe even how this experience will likely shape Australia's outlook to preparing for similar global crises. Of course, we're always keen to hear from you and what you think regards the issues that we have discussed on this and earlier episodes, what you might like to hear us pick apart in future episodes, or how we might improve the pod as a whole. You can get in touch via Twitter on Apps Policy Forum, or you can hit me up using at NatSecPod, or you can join our Facebook group at PolicyPod, or you can give the personal touch by sending an email to podcast at policyforum.net. Feel free to drop us some feedback or give us a rating on whatever platform you pod with. In the meantime, stay home, wash your hands, offer help to those who could use it, be kind, stay healthy, and we will catch you on the next episode of the National Security Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.